This is ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. It's graduation season at many colleges and universities. Did you spend the past weekend at a commencement ceremony? Perhaps you're preparing for one this weekend. It's a special time as a new graduating class transitions into the next step of their careers. On ASHA Voices, we're taking the occasion to look forward and ask who will be next. What does the future of the professions look like? We know increasing diversity and representation in the pipeline through colleges and universities continues to be critical. According to 2021 ASHA year-end membership data, just over 8.5% of ASHA members and affiliates identify as individuals from underrepresented racial groups and just over 6% identify as Hispanic or Latino. And while there is more diversity among CSD students, underrepresentation continues. On this episode of the podcast, we've gathered three leaders from CSD programs at historically black colleges and universities to ask how we can create and retain greater diversity in CSD programs. Today's panelists discuss strategies for retaining students from underrepresented backgrounds and suggest what predominantly white institutions can learn from HBCUs. And they share stories of the people and places that help them find success in CSD. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's resource, That's Unheard Of. This online resource features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. Check out thatsunheardof.org. Joining me now are three leaders from HBCU CSD programs. SLP Jessica Berry is an assistant professor, graduate coordinator, and acting chair of the Department of Speech Pathology and Audiology at South Carolina State University. Audiologist Jessica Sullivan is an assistant professor and interim department chair in the Department of Communicative Sciences and Disorders at Hampton University. And SLP Deanna McQuitty is an associate professor and director of the speech program at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. There are 12 HBCUs that offer CSD programs, and many of our listeners may not have had the opportunity to study at one. So I began the conversation by asking our guests to share with me some of the things that they think set the experience apart. What's it like to be a student at an HBCU? Jessica Sullivan speaks first. I'll start, even though I have zero experience as a student at an HBCU, I do see that it's a different cultural environment for students. And I think mentorship is kind of the cornerstone and just developing the whole self is something that I know we strive for here at Hampton University. But that has been something that has been a part of the fabric of our university since our department was established back in 1954, that we have really focused on developing the whole student leadership and giving them opportunities to showcase that. So I'm hearing you say mentorship. That's a big part of the on-campus experience. Absolutely. Deanna, would you like to talk about the role of mentorship at A&T? Sure. Deanna McQuitty. So I'm coming from a place where I have personal experience um, of being an undergraduate student at North Carolina A&T State University. And so I think Jessica was very much head on in terms of 
how it is different, how it does vary. Some of the words that come to my mind when I think about the HBCU experience for students in particular is a sense of community. And research has shown that students that are being instructed by others that may share same experiences with them tend to really increase in terms of this sense of community, which we know increases and enhances academic success. And so with that being said, when you have that sense of community, then you also have that idea of mentorship, where students build rapport with faculty and mentorship, as Jessica said, does become the cornerstone of their overall experience. I can remember just thinking about my time as an HBCU undergraduate student. Those mentors that I had really are the ones that pushed me to continue my pursuit in advanced studies in speech language pathology. But not only that, being with them, them mentoring me, it also made me really have a trajectory of coming back to North Carolina A&T State University and providing that same mentorship that was provided to me that helped me be very successful. I'm wondering, could you give me an example of what is that mentorship relationship for you? What did you experience and what are you passing on to the next generation? Absolutely. So I think when we think about mentorship, a lot of people think about advising and advising students within the discipline, what courses to take, what is going to make them a successful student. But when I think about true mentorship, I think about knowing the student beyond the academic walls. So we have to understand that when we are providing this teaching and learning for our students, it really sets us apart when we're able to learn about the student, learn successes of students outside of the classroom, think about them from a cultural perspective, whether that's gender, religion, special interests, their values. And I think really looking at what means the most to them goes into this whole aspect of mentoring. You know, I can remember when I was being mentored as an undergrad student at A&T, I was one that didn't want to go far for graduate school. And that's a cultural, one of our cultural variations is that in the African-American community, we tend to be close knit. And so my mentors were the ones that said, you know, Deanna, you can do it. You can go to Connecticut and be successful. And so giving you that motivation, giving you that extra push to say, yes, you can do it, is what I see as successful mentorship and also being culturally responsive when we mentor, knowing the whole student. Uh, Jessica Berry, at South Carolina State University, what's the role that mentors play there? Mentorship at South Carolina State University is essential. Our founder, Dr. Harold Powell, laid a foundation for that. I remember hearing stories. I actually matriculated through the master's program here, and they would tell me how Dr. Powell would refer to students by their first, middle, and last name. That's just one example of how the faculty bring the students into sort of a familial environment, which lends itself really well to students taking ownership of their curriculum, ownership 
of their next steps in the profession. And what I saw from personal experience coming through um, an HBCU for my master's degree was that my college, my professors at the HBCU were really concerned about if I was doing okay. There was always a point of checking in, a point of checking on uh, my mental status, on checking on, are you progressing the way you should be? And so they really made it a point to make me and all of my classmates feel like we had ownership and what we were getting. They said, listen, you're going to be responsible for these clients when you leave these walls. We're trying to prepare you. So they nurtured that ownership and independence in us. And so here at, at SC State, we keep that tradition going by bringing them into the family and also by making them appreciate how to respond to cultural nuances that their classmates and their cohorts bring into the building, into the program, giving them the language to use for cultural responsiveness, giving them this idea of sense of belonging where potentially at other types of institutions, they don't quite have that familial experience. So for me, it was the ownership, the mentorship, the family sort of environment that was created here at SD State. You mentioned other institutions, and that's one of the questions I want to ask. What can colleges and universities, especially PWIs, predominantly white institutions, can they learn from HBCUs about creating either a, a more diverse school or the ability to retain that diversity in their student body? Just to hop in, because I've had the experience at teaching at both, I can see that the focus is different. At some predominantly white institutions, the focus is we want to be number one in research or we want to be number one in whatever, and the students have to match or meet the professors where they are, where I think at the HBCU, because of mentorship, we want to meet students where they are. And it's a shift in what your actual priorities and what your culture is. So when a lot of predominantly white schools are kind of in this space of thinking, okay, well, we have to get some diversity. And what does that look like? Some of it may seem performative. So if they stick a picture of one student or they admit one, they think they've done their job and there's no support system or they don't even know what resources that they actually have on campus for students of color or from students from diverse backgrounds or LGBTQ students. They have no idea, but they're like, oh, we just know if we get one, we've met the idea of diversity. But diversity is something that we even have to think about at an HBCU because everybody's coming from different backgrounds. Some students will come in never having such a nurturing environment. So it's almost like you have to kind of reprogram them a little bit just so they can feel comfortable in this space. So I don't know if anyone else experienced something similar. Yes, I think that's very interesting. I'm coming from a perspective, of course, where I went to an undergrad at HBCU, but then I went to graduate school at a PWI. So I kind of have both experiences. And I think really one of the things that kind of set apart the school that I went to for my master's, very similar story that Jessica said, is that this particular school, Southern Connecticut State University at the time, the chair, Dr. Sandra Holly, who was the past ASHA president back in the late 80s, 
she actually had a educational minority scholarship that she had from the mid to late 80s, uh, OSEP grant, where she was heavily recruiting um, students of color into that program at Southern Connecticut. And she was probably one of the biggest mentors that I had because integral part of her grant, I would say she used about 70% of her grant to establish a mentor program for incoming students. And so her mentoring program was not one of those programs that was just there while you were there as a student. But to this day, I still have connections with the students in Connecticut that served as mentors for me to this day. And so the mentoring program, it paired me with a previous student that went through the program with, through her grant at Southern Connecticut State University. And for me, that was essential because not only was I coming from an HBCU to a PWI, but I was also 11 hours from home. Really looking at PWIs, really taking those type of models and then using those type of models in an effort to encourage students that may be coming from diverse backgrounds and making them feel a part, once again, that sense of community. So you can have that sense of community if you are at an HBCU or a PWI. You just have to be intentional about how you establish those opportunities for students. Absolutely. And I think I can add to that, having gone to an HBCU for my master's, a PWI for my PhD, coming back, teaching at a PWI and now teaching at an HBCU. I've had like the full circle experience, if you will. And one of the things I love what my colleagues said, and just to add on to that, it was really important when I taught at the PWI, my minority students would always say, we wish we had more faculty that looked like us. And I think that PWIs can work toward diversifying their faculty so that their students have someone that looks like them, sounds like them, that they can relate to, that's providing information for them, which really helps in building their confidence in their skills. It's really difficult to be at a place where you don't have faculty who look like you and who can help speak to the experiences that you may be having as a student. And so I was really grateful whenever I went to LSU, although there wasn't anything as formal as what Dr. McWitty mentioned with her mentor, but my dissertation advisor made it a point before I got on the plane to fly to Louisiana, I didn't know anyone there, but she connected me with the other black students who were working on her grant and asked them just straight out, can you mentor Jessica? And that was really important for me. And I think we can, like Dr. McQuitty mentioned, take those models and make them into sort of formal models at PWIs so that we create that family environment that we see that's a natural part of an HBCU experience. At an HBCU, it's just a natural family. It's like a big cookout. But at a PWI, <laughs> we, we kind of have to replicate that in some ways. And I think that uh, creating those are really important if we're going to also at PWIs be intentional about the recruitment of minority students. If we're going to be intentional about recruiting them, we have to be intentional about what we're doing throughout their matriculation to retain them and ensure that they have a positive experience while they're um, under our leadership. 
And I think that's the key point, Jessica, because there's a lot of, I get probably every week, two and three emails from PWIs because they recognize North Carolina A&T State University. We have a large undergraduate population of students that they're trying to seek. And so I always say that it's one thing to do all of this recruiting and to get students of color into those programs at PWIs. But my question to them is always, what is your retention plan? What kinds of things do you have in place to ensure that once they're there, they are going to be equipped with opportunities to be inclusive, opportunities to have leadership roles and to really be nurtured in order to ensure their success in the programs? That's always my question. Recruitment, but retention is the bigger issue for me. Yeah, I think both of those things are key. And it's the culture or the makeup of the faculty and their values. Because if you have a program where faculty are not placing a high value on diversity issues, or you have to become punitive or like bean counting to just try to make them participate in diversity issues, Those are programs that I would not recommend my students apply to because then it's a matter of fit. And you want students to be somewhere where they're coming from these really nurturing environments. You want them to be somewhere that's going to be supportive. And that was kind of the idea of the spirit behind the impact grant that Lauren Calandrusio and I have that we started with the Small ASHA grant. Tell us about that grant. Yeah. Prior to 2020, Lauren Caladrucio, who's she's also an audiologist at Case Western Reserve University, we would have these conversations about how sometimes we would have a student of color that would be successful to get into grad school. But once they got to grad school, all of a sudden they become the student of concern. And we know that these are good students. So we were brainstorming. So we're like, okay, well, let's equip our undergraduate students to make sure that they can not only get in, but they could get in and then be successful. So we developed this grant where case students would be matched with Hampton students and together we would train them. They're all students of color, all interested in CSD, and we train them together on issues of professional branding and professional development activities such as building your resume, building your personal statement, writing coaches, GRE prep. It's been very successful because there are some kids who probably were kind of in the murky middle, didn't know. They weren't bad students, but they really didn't have direction. And they've since stepped up their leadership ability. They've gotten into grad school. Our students this year from Case and Hampton combined have gotten over, I would say, $350,000 in scholarships and multiple over 40-something offers to graduate schools. And some are in the top programs. So we have speech and audiology students this year that have been successful. I think mentorship and support at the undergrad level so they can stand on their own at the grad level is key. Jessica, I think there are a lot of these collaborative efforts in trying to build capacity 
and collaborations between PWIs and traditional HBCUs. Our speech program at North Carolina A&T just received back in October of 2021 a Build Capacity Grant, but it's in collaboration with Penn State and their um, grants program in communication sciences and disorders. And the focus of the grant is to build capacity within the speech and hearing science realm of where you see underrepresented populations of students going into that field within our discipline. And so we're really excited because this is also an opportunity, as you were saying, Jessica, to really build research skills for our undergraduate students. We have instructional facilitators, our students that helped us come up with our research project proposal. We are helping them understand the IRB process, what research looks like. And we're actually doing a study this coming fall that looks at executive functioning for college students who have been diagnosed with COVID-19. So it's also a topic that really has impacted college students and they are really on board. So you're exactly right. This idea of mentoring also um, speaks to our position as faculty to really get in students in a place where they are competitive beyond the undergraduate level, beyond North Carolina A&T. So very similar, Jessica, we've had quite a bit of our students, 95% of our graduating class, they've already been accepted into graduate programs. We have two that have been accepted with full rides to UNC Chapel Hill for the fall. We're really excited about the opportunities that research, mentoring, and the like really provide students when there are these collaborative efforts between HBCUs and PWIs. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we talk about how things have changed, or maybe not, since the summer of 2020. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's resource, That's Unheard Of. It's always important to check for blind spots in your practice. That's Unheard Of features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. They're quick and easy to use. Learn more at thatsunheardof.org. I want to reference a blog post. Um, It's from the National Student Speech Language Hearing Association blog. The post was written by Kevin Simmons. Kevin wrote this blog post in November of last year. Kevin writes, quote, as a second year SLP graduate student at Radford University in Virginia, I'm one of three men in my cohort of 23, and I'm the only black person, end quote. Radford is, of course, not an HBCU. Uh, Kevin goes on to write about his experience creating DEI initiatives in response to the summer of 2020. Uh, Kevin writes, quote, early 2020 brought the realization that we are living through not just one, but two pandemics. One, the COVID-19 outbreak that has lasted for more than a year and a half now. Two, racism, which has lasted for four 400 plus years, end quote. I'll link to his writing on the blog post for this episode of the podcast at on.ash.org slash podcast, but I wanted to talk about this. Are we seeing things change regarding DEI education, awareness, and interest since the summer of 2020? Is it leading to greater diversity in the professions or is it too soon to tell? I think it's too soon to tell. And if you think about the summer of 2020, everybody had position statements and was coming out with position statements and trying to say like, oh, well, I'm not, it's not me. But then when you look at their cohort and you look at how they pick their students, 
you know, so we've slowly started to get rid of, some schools have gotten rid of using the GRE, but I think it's too soon to tell, and it's going to be a hard target to look at for a while, unless you look at the numbers of getting in and finishing graduate school, but I don't think it'll ever be even because just the sheer volume and numbers is, that's not going to happen. But I think we are needing to pay a little more attention to how we train undergrads to make sure that they're successful. It's one thing, I think we all agree to get them in, but do they have the support to be sustained through graduate school, which is a highly stressful pivot point in your life, right? If they're not equipped and have the tools to understand I have to change some habits about myself. And just because this isn't my favorite professor who lets me come to their office every day, um, I can still be successful and I know how to navigate. I will say just from my perspective, and it may, I'm not, it may be, I may be on a listserv or something, but I will note that prior to summer 2020, as compared to now, there has been, If not a full 100% buy-in, I will say that I have noticed more initiatives in terms of PWIs trying to connect with the speech program at North Carolina A&T in terms of wanting to, whether it's scheduled town hall meetings or wanting to connect the NISHLA programs. Um, You know, I have quite a few universities such as University of Pittsburgh, as I said, Penn State, uh, Minnesota State University that actually have reached out and are trying um, to kind of dispel that myth and trying to be more proactive in terms of addressing DEI and trying to increase representation at those schools of students of color. And I'll add to that, I agree with Jessica that I think it's too soon to tell, but I do think that what we saw in 2020 was a shift in our awareness and if you will, hyper awareness of the dire space we were in when it comes to percentage of minority students entering PWIs, percentage of minority SLPs across the field. I think we were made hyper aware of it just because of the climate in this country. But what I think more importantly is that there are some universities that took that awareness and turned it into holistic admissions policies, who turned it into those strategic opportunities to partner with HBCUs, who reached out to department chairs to say, hey, we would love to see some of your students apply to our program, who made those concerted efforts to recruit minority students. And I think we should applaud those efforts while also saying, what else can we do? And how can we get HBCUs and PWIs at the table more often so that we can continue to build this bridge? Because we're literally building it as we're crossing the ocean. But what else can we do to continue to lay this bridge, a strong foundation for minority students who have historically not been afforded the opportunity to enter this field, to have that opportunity and to do it at institutions, the institution of their choice, 
not just an HBCU because that was the only one that would give them the opportunity. And so I think we have to also have those conversations about how are PWIs creating more opportunities for minority students, knowing the backgrounds of minority students, which include coming from low SES backgrounds, right? Being first generation college students. What are we doing to help bridge the things that we already know are initial barriers to retention of those students in their programs. And I think we have to just begin to have these honest conversations, but we have to come to the table to do those things. I think that the ongoing conversations have to happen if we wanna see an increase from the eight and a half percent minority SLPs that currently exist in our field. Right. I think we have to be more strategic. I think everybody else's speech, but thinking about audiology, there are no HBCU audiology programs. It's hard for, if you don't see it, you can't be it because you don't think it's even a possibility, right? For students that are from underrepresented backgrounds or that are African-American or Black that could be audiologists, it's very daunting for them to make those hurdles because they don't have those opportunities and it's so few programs and it's so very competitive. And there's not like a soft landing spot at an HBCU because the programs are just too expensive. And so the whole AUD and how expensive it is and what that means to the profession, that's a whole nother conversation. But just know that students of color are not really a part of that conversation. And very interesting, Jessica, we talk about those numbers. And then what I'm also seeing is just the decreasing numbers for students of color that are males in the field. And so we're dealing with so many variables here when we talk about diversity, not just diversity of African-Americans, but also diversity of gender within the profession. How are we recruiting African-American males within the profession. One of the things that we've done at North Carolina A&T to try to address that is that we have a middle college that's on the campus of A&T. It's the middle college at North Carolina A&T where it's an all boys high school. And so we have been very intentional about doing health career fairs about speech pathology for those students because Perhaps the stigma of allied health sciences for males in general, research has shown that because the speech pathology field is considered a feminine field. But what I have found with the healthcare seminars that we've done to the middle college, which houses about 300 um, African-American boys, I was able to recruit 15 African-American boys in this upcoming freshman class that have declared speech pathology as their major. So I think that looking at these DEI issues, we have to also think about just as a stakeholder, what are we doing at the grassroots level to really help bridge those gaps into the even more disparity we see among African-American males within the profession. And as Jessica said, audiologists going into the profession as well. Jessica, you mentioned a holistic admissions process. I think you mentioned that some universities have stopped using the GRE. While preparing for this episode, talking to SLPs, some people said there should be 
more thought on what a successful student and a successful applicant looks like, and that maybe some of the criteria that was used in the past may not promote the most diverse recruitment. Can I just ask for you all to speak on that for a moment? In terms of admissions, I think there's no ideal candidate for every program. I think you know what's a fit for your personality-wise for what type of student does well in your environment. So I think you kind of have those things in mind. And the GRE was to try to see, like, okay, well, if they do really well in the GRE, maybe they're good at standardized testing, so maybe they'll pass praxis. Because, you, again, you have certain standards that you have to be able to adhere to when you're running a program. But there are other intangibles that I think that sometimes people don't capture. They don't look at, I call them soft skills. Jessica, what do you think in terms of looking for admissions? Like, you know, I like to see leadership. I like to see that they're teachable. They can receive feedback, like those intangibles. So that's why we've added interviews to our process. Absolutely. Um, I, I agree. And and I think those soft skills, that's the language we use over here as well. So I don't think you're far off on that. But we've added many interviews. We've added an enhanced writing sample to our admissions process. But I think the many interviews tell us a whole lot because we're able to ask those questions about their decision making skills, what they would do in the event of X, Y, Z. We really get to let them shine in terms of their past leadership skills and what they think they bring to the department. But sometimes that student who has the 4.0 and looks amazing on paper gets on the interview. We really see that they struggle with those soft skills that are going to make them successful in the clinic. And so, you know, remembering that what we do is twofold. You might have the ability to pass the classes, but you have to be able to relate to those clients in the clinic. And so those many interviews have been amazing for our admissions process and kind of rounding out how we're able to determine who can be a successful student in this HBCU environment, which is another type of environment, especially if a student is coming in from a PWI. That's been really important and really helpful for us. As you all were talking about, you know, the students and looking at criteria and thinking about the students that would be successful in programs. I think one of the things that I've noted, particularly, and you all probably have noted this too, I think that we also, when we're looking at students now, I found that students have kind of shifted in the type of students that we're teaching during and since after, if we want to say post-COVID. I am noting that there are a lot of students that we have to account for socialization kinds of things, mental health types of things, and just being resilient. And I think that as we continue to look at students and this whole idea of recruitment, recruiting students, retaining students, we are going to have to be very intentional about adding possibly a piece to our orientation within the discipline when they come in about, um, I think Jessica said, you know, those soft skills, but also how to motivate students. One of the things that we do in our program is I do a series of peer mentoring, mentoring, but we use the text called the confident student. 
And a lot of that is just about what motivates students. Once we get students in there, as Jessica said, they may look great on paper. They may be outperforming academically, but how are they on those metacognitive skills and essential skills? And so I think we really have to think about that student from a holistic approach, but also consider that the students that we are teaching now, because of such the pandemic has affected mental health and other things that I think are going to play out, really being cognizant of that as well. I love those points. It made me think of something as Dr. McQuitty was talking, but I think at HBCUs and PWIs, I don't know if we fully account for the fact that some of our students who come into the master's program, so we have both graduate and undergraduate here at SC State, but what I notice about our graduate students is they don't have a clue what it means to be a graduate student. And we really have to work hard to orient them to the rigor and the requirements when it comes to writing and oral oral and written skills and they're clueless. And so we recognize that. And so we do a two day orientation and we work with them and we have round tables every Friday with clinic and we have simulations and we do all of these things to work them through those skills that they may not otherwise acquire. And I think it's gonna be important when it comes to that retention and building of that confident student that we're intentional about that, but also just understanding that they may not know. And and I was one of those students, first gen. I didn't know. I thought grad was going to be just like undergrad. And it was a learning curve that someone had to come in and undergird. And I think this takes me back to the beginning of our conversation, mentorship. Somebody has to be there to meet that student where they are with what they're bringing in and just not expect them to jump to our expectations the minute they walk into the door. It's not fair to them. And that's where we see them underperform and not be successful and end up serving in our field. What I did this year that was a little different because we're coming first time back since the pandemic from being virtual, I really took a lot of time into orientation, like you said, but also providing some opportunities for the students to get to understand the space of where they are, because Hampton was the oldest degree granting program at an HBCU, started by Robert Martin Screen, and he's our founder. And so we wanted the grad students to get a piece of that. So we did like a scavenger hunt where they had to learn about campus and learn about Dr. Screen and understand the space that they're in. And then we would do like a fun, like beach cookout thing for them and invited them all. So they can start to have this sense of, oh, like I do belong here. And I also had each of the first year students set up a meeting with me that first week where they come in just five minutes just to meet with me because I didn't want the first time they're talking to me as chair to be this something went wrong or something's not right or they're complaining or they're being talked to or have to do some type of remediation. But I wanted to like establish that rapport. And I think that's something that I think you think about when you're at an HBCU. You want them to understand the richness that's a part of the culture of your department. Does anyone else have anything else they want to share? Is there any other thoughts that you want to make sure that we cover? I'd just like to add, finally, 
HBCUs are a special place for comedy, for audiology. I think we have unique spaces to support and uplift and to nurture students coming into our field and to provide them with experiences with multiple people from different cultures and different backgrounds. And I just like to say that I think we can't discount the quality of an HBCU education in these times. And it's really important to celebrate the universities that do have programs and are building programs and fostering connections like Dr. McQuitty and Jessica spoke about. And so I think this is great that we've gotten a chance to come together and have these conversations to highlight what is so very important to the fabric of our field. Well said. Well, I want to thank each of you for your time today. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me, to share your insights and experiences. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Asha Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the Asha Leader Magazine. Support for Asha Voices comes from Asha's resource, That's Unheard Of. This online resource features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. Learn more at that'sunheardof.org. I'm JD Gray, and this is Asha Voices.